everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. Uh, we've got another very special guest today. Her name's Laura Dodsworth. Uh, she's the author of the book, A State of Fear. And she writes the, a substack, the Laura Dodsworth substacks. Everybody should go check that out. Uh, but so Laura, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thank you for having me. I can't think of a better podcast, really, uh, you know, fit-wise for me. So it's fantastic. I loved your book. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. So I'm glad we're getting to do this again. Uh, my my first question for you was it's kind of about your initial reaction to it. And, and you wrote about it in the book um, mm. that the virus, you were initially so, seemingly were a little concerned because it's something new you weren't familiar with. and it, But you kind of seemed a little bit more fairly measured in your response. But then when Boris Johnson gave his speech saying everybody needs to stay home, we're locking down, uh, that's, you know, we're moving in that direction in terms of policy. It seemed like you kind of reacted a bit more viscerally. So why do you think it was that his speech in particular kind of affected you that way, maybe even more so than the virus did? Mm, yeah. Isn't it funny? I think that um, there was just a lot of fear in the air and really everybody was subjected to some fears. It's just which fears you yourself are susceptible to. Now, I did have some fear about the virus and, you know, I remember stocking up on tinned food. I'm a, a single parent and I thought, well, if I'm if I'm terribly ill, how will my children cook? Because we were being told we couldn't leave the house at all. Mm-hmm. And so the sort of normal recourse to help, like family and friends, wouldn't be available. So I had some nerves and my children still tease me about the fact that I asked them to wash their hands when they came indoors for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> but my um my approach is often to sort of deep dive and research and and look things up for myself and from very early i was reading up on different epidemiologists and scientists views of the virus so while there are a lot of unknowns at the beginning there were also very respected voices um urging caution on the ifr for instance um professor johnny and ardis um and contextualizing epidemics and pandemics and i don't think i had an out of scale fear of it and you see here in the uk the initial response was that we would cocoon the elderly and a certain amount of herd immunity would build up and then there was this sudden u-turn and i think i found the u-turn discombobulating i just couldn't believe the address to the nation on the 23rd of March. It was very stern. It was really going for a, a wartime vibe, you know, war on a war on a virus. And yeah. for some reason, I fast forwarded mentally very quickly, not that night, but very quickly into what the consequences could be. And to be honest, watching those fears become fulfilled you know to see them unfurl over time has been quite horrific so the longer lockdown went on it was it was obvious that we would have high inflation because we were quantitative easing our way through this um i was surprised that people were so adamant that children were resilient and children would be okay and shutting schools and masking children would be fine because clearly it hasn't been and I felt very frightened about the consequences of the very extreme, absolutely unprecedented actions we were taking. I think what confounded that as well was as soon as you stepped outside for your, your daily allowed exercise, people were really different with each other. Just, you know, where I live, which is semi-countryside, 
Um, they would hop to the side of country lanes or pavements to avoid each other. And it, it created that additional fear in the air. So for me, the fear wasn't of the virus. I thought it was strange that people were so frightened of a virus out in the open air. Um, for me, the fear was how easily fear was communicated and how manipulated people could be and what the effects of lockdown would be. And I did, I did feel it viscerally. That first night of the speech, um, I had that freeze response. I felt everything drained from my body. Um, it was, it was a very wobbly, shaky feeling. I've always thought I've got the most useless fear response. Um, <laughs> this is not the first time this has happened to me that I drain and become become useless. And interestingly, there is a lot of shame with this fear response because, um, you know, it's people will feel like they should have been able to run away or or to fight. I guess I'm a freezer. Mm. You also mentioned uh, in the book about a section about his body language during that speech. And mm. did you know, is that something that you noticed as well that he, it, you know, I think it was phrased something like that. It was a, almost like a hostage situation. Was that something that you noticed when you were watching it or was that something that just kind of came up later in the conversations with people? No, the whole thing felt completely weird to me and it threw me and it is part of what scared me. Um, his words about the virus did not scare me. The extreme semi-Churchillian and authoritarian language scared me. And it was that combined with this very staccato, peculiar body language. There was something about it that just felt off. And that's why I thought it would be a good place to start the book. So I consulted with um, forensic psychologists, somebody who interviews uh, people who have uh, lied to the authorities and uh, tried to cover their traces, and somebody who also works with body language to see what they made of it. And actually, it's more that um, their professional opinions concurred with the feeling that I'd had um, that his his body language wasn't congruent with his words there are parts when he's more relaxed because he, he appears to believe what he's saying and there are parts where he's not comfortable with what he's saying at all what that means exactly who knows whether he was lying whether he just felt uncomfortable maybe with delivering some very bad news to the nation this is a man who likes to be liked and to deliver the news about lockdown would be a very difficult message for any statesman. Yeah, it's interesting, and uh, it's it's one of those like important moments of history, and and so it's, uh, it's really important, I think, to kind of go back and look and see and what they were thinking and and mm. saying at the time and how they how they were saying it. Uh, another thing I think that we we kind of both bring up a lot is what a poor job the media has done with with regards to COVID, and and you know, I know you wrote about it how they kind of gave a lot of softball questions to, to Boris Johnson or to other health leaders, uh, which was definitely the case in the United States as well with certain governors that were not Ron DeSantis from Florida. Uh, so why do you think that that was a consistent feature across both countries? Like what, what was it about the journalism profession that was so ready and willing to go along with, with lockdowns and all these other policies? Oh, it was just so depressing. I had to stop watching the press briefings because I felt like shouting at the TV to you know, tell the journalists off for not asking more probing questions. We had questions like, do you think we'll be able to have Christmas or can we hug our relatives? It was truly pathetic. <laughs> um, all the questioning came from within the framework, not outside of the framework. So 
things like the you know the the assumptions of the modeling weren't challenged the ingests were never questioned the data wasn't questioned the presumptions weren't questioned the only question was are we doing enough are we doing it early enough hard enough soon enough i think that there are it's multifactorial there are probably a number of reasons for this i think activist journalism is a real problem um the response to covid has been very partisan among journalists you know, if Trump said something, it had to be wrong, you know, orange man, bad, wrong. And here, you know, there's also a lot of uh, Tory bashing. So anybody who doesn't like the Conservatives or didn't like Brexit might um, take an opposing, opposing position and give the Conservatives a hard time for their handling. Also, you know, it was a pandemic. Things were happening fast. There isn't a lot of time in newsrooms to consider things carefully. It's been obvious to me as well that some journalists aren't very numerate or scientifically minded. Now, I'm not saying that I'm especially numerate or scientifically minded. I had to work hard at it and where I didn't understand, I, I've asked uh, maths with friends to help me with, with stuff. Um, and I think there's um, a big problem about clickbait journalism. Uh, fear really sells. Fear sells better than sex, it turns out. And there is a way in which remuneration is very at least subtly connected to those clicks there is one there's one broadsheet journalist i interviewed anonymously who explained that their remuneration is linked to the success of their articles so you know the most lurid headline the most fear-driven headline will also generate the most clicks and views and then journalists are compensated for that. Everybody likes their likes on, on Twitter. You know, Twitter's an important habitat for journalists too. Um, and you'll see that, you'll see broadcast and print journalists break their thoughts and stories on Twitter. Yeah. So I think I think it's multifactorial. And, and there's another really important aspect, which is Ofcom, that's the, um, the regulator for broadcast media here, issue guidance saying that um, broadcast journalists should be careful not to go against the government advice um, because it might create public harm. It's, it's crazy. Uh, it, it's insane to think about that, that a regulator was telling journalists not to question the government. I mean, that's just mind boggling. That's literally their whole job. <laughs> you know, it's it, it, seemingly that's their whole job. Um, mm. But you, you mentioned how the fear seems to sell. And, and that was uh, a section I really enjoyed of your book was where there's a lot of these quotes that you, you bring up from the media uh, with these kind of outrageous, and at least looking back, they're outrageous headlines that are very obviously fear driven. Um, mm. And it's, it seemed like, and let me know if I'm wrong, but it seemed like the vast majority of people, especially in the UK and in the U S bought into that. Um, would you have expected that people would buy it pre COVID or were you surprised that people weren't skeptical? I, I mean, I, my personal sense as an outsider is that a lot of, you know, Britain, there's a lot of skepticism towards these things, but it seemed like that kind of went away recently. Oh, no, I think we've got a very he healthy, skeptical community here, I'm going to have to say. But I think you can't underestimate something like this Ofcom guidance. You know, it really chilled the inclination of the media to explore theories. And the broadcast media is very important. And also um, big tech. Um, were censoring views that went against the World Health Organization or governments. And we've got to remember that their positions changed on things. Now, if, you know, if social media, like say YouTube or Twitter, were, were going to hold up the World Health Organization view at any one given time, think about things they said during this pandemic. 
there's no human to human transmission. That's one thing the World Health Organization said. Um, or it didn't originate from a lab, or it's not airborne. Well, you know, the, the advice and the, the thoughts change constantly. So it's very, you know, you have to have um, debate and allow questions. And this is this is part of, of science to, to ask questions and challenge hypotheses. There shouldn't be a faith in it. You know, the situation we had here is where the, the state broadcaster, the BBC and other broadcasters couldn't really challenge the state orthodoxy because of Ofcom guidance. So that's, you know, that's all part of the, the media landscape. Um, now, publications which have had a, a good epidemic were probably more sceptical, such as The Telegraph and The Spectator. They've both seen their subscriptions grow substantially during this time. And they, they have online subscriptions as well. They have a subscription model, which personally, I'm a really big fan of. You know, you're going to pay for your news one way or the other. You're going to pay via ads or sponsorship or the sale of your data, or you're going to pay through um, individual copy sales or subscription. I think subscription is a really good model for providing sound journalism. So we have had a, a mix and you know, that chapter referring to my book, that is called Frightful Headlines. So it's really some <laughs> of the very worst examples. It, I mean, it was um, horrific in a way, keeping a tally of it through the year. Um, people were told to be frightened of literally everything from ice cream to semen, there wasn't anything that you couldn't catch COVID from and there wasn't any aspects of your health that could it could um, damage. I don't know how much people believed it all. I, I mean, I really don't know. In my own little bubble, I, I brought quite a lot of scepticism to it. But I think there's something about Britain, you know, we're, we're definitely a home of liberal thought, an island nation. And I, I think there's actually been a lot of pushback in this country um, about things such as vaccine mandates, for instance, and vaccine passports, a very successful political pushback and some political rebellion. And I think overall, there has been a good amount of scepticism, but it's very difficult to know in your own bubble. And of course, this is one aspect of, of lockdown. We're atomized. We, we talk, you know, during those really crucial peak times, we didn't talk to other people as much in real life. Whereas you might settle some ideas in the pub or, you know, by the water cooler at work. We were all at home and really engaging with our screens a lot more. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you brought up kind of the vaccine mandates and, and that there was a little bit more of a success, successful pushback. And I did want to ask you about that as well, because you you recently uh, wrote a substack kind of to talking about how masks were essentially the idea was to soften the public up for plan B, which was essentially vaccine mm -hmm. passports, among other things. But um, mm. it seemed like they, you know, were, were, do you think that they were successful in that attempt to soften people up? But it, or did, were they were the people willing to kind of fight back against? Was that like a bridge too far for them at that point? No, I mean, people donned their masks again. Um, see, that was very interesting. That's some um, somebody who works on a COVID task force within government contacted me to say they would like to talk to me anonymously about developments. And they, they shared some documents with me and we talked. And that substack was a report of that conversation, really. And the reason they contacted me is I'd written about this already in The Telegraph, one of our national newspapers. When the government brought out its, its winter plan, it had plan A and plan B and for me, it was obvious that the, the whole point of these plans were to, to lay the groundwork for what they really want to do. And the government advisors were saying, yes, that's correct. Masks have been reintroduced to soften you up 
for the next stage. It's some, it's like a you know a form of psychological technique. And the interesting thing about that person that contacted me, and really some of the most severe criticism of the government is it has come from government advisors. Um, you know, some some quite shocking accusations, really. I mean, one of the one of the behavioural psychologists who spoke to me anonymously did warn about creeping authoritarianism in government, that the pandemic can be used to grab power and drive things through that wouldn't happen otherwise. And another told me that psychology is, is, a, is a weapon without a psychology, without vaccine, psychology is your best weapon and said psychology has had a really good epidemic actually. And another told me that the use of fear had been dystopian. And I think this is part of the reason that the book works and it's had such a good audience. It's because there are people who are close to government who were appalled with the techniques, with the psychological, um, with the games, with the behavioural psychology approach. And that's why they wanted to talk to me anonymously to, to help expose it. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm glad that they did because it is. <laughs> I think it's very very important. But uh, you know, I, I I focus a lot on masks. We're just kind of talking about it, and so I wanted mm. to to get your thoughts. You know, what was what did you think of masks as the mandate started to roll out in the UK, and especially there because I feel like early on, um, maybe even more so than the US, a lot of the the kind of health leaders in the UK were downplaying masks and saying that they weren't going to make a difference and weren't going to work. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, you had Fauci, didn't you, say that masks wouldn't actually prevent transmission. They might just stop a few droplets. Um, and we had the, the, the same here from multiple public health officials, senior public health officials. And then there was this U-turn, wasn't there? Now, one of the MPs I interviewed for the book told me that the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care told the MP that masks were introduced to encourage confidence when the first lockdown ended. The problem was that the high street didn't bounce back. When the lockdown ended, people didn't go and hit the shops and hit the high street in the way the government had expected. And so masks were supposedly, reportedly introduced as a way to give people confidence. The problem is they turned people into walking billboards for danger. And it became obvious that masks offer another kind of signal. Now in a select committee hearing, that's when MPs get to ask experts for their uh, almost like witness statements um, for their opinions. Um, David Halpin, who is the head of the behavioral insights team, that's the nudge unit, referred to masks as being a signal that masks were useful as a signal, as well as the underlying evidence that they reduce transmission. I think it's really important to note that there are people in government, ministers, the head of the nudge unit, and behavioral psychologists scientists for my book, who refer to masks primarily as serving the purpose of being a signal. Now, how did I feel about it? I hated it. I couldn't actually believe that the uptake was as high as it was mm -hmm. because it was clear that there wasn't any new scientific evidence to justify the use of cloth and surgical masks in the community to reduce transmission. And I think it's incredibly onerous to make a law to compel people to dress a certain way without evidence. Because really, without, without evidence, it is just a form of dress. It's not PPE. 
Mm -hmm. um, and I think over time, the symbolism of masks has really changed. While they were signals to indicate that we were in a pandemic, they've become something else. Um, it's, it's fading now, it's receding now, but they've really become signals of morality and virtue. You know, good, compliant, virtuous people wear masks. Your mask shows you care for other people. And if you don't wear a mask, what does that mean? That you don't care? And so that's, that's the thought behind it. Now, there also was quite a lot of shaming attached to masks. Dane Crester Dick, who's the head of the, the Met Police, said that police wouldn't be enforcing the mask mandates in shops. And instead, she was trusting on the public to shame each other for not hmm. wearing masks. Now, in this country, we did actually have exemptions. For instance, let's say you had a physical disability that might prevent you from wearing a mask, or even if the idea of wearing a mask would cause you significant distress, you didn't have to wear one. So you, you can imagine that could, in, that could include perhaps uh, people who have been raped, who might commonly have a problem with something covering the mouth, or veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. I've spoken to two veterans with PTSD that make masks very difficult. There's lots of reasons people could have for not wearing a mask. So we always had exemptions. So the idea that we had the head of London police saying she wanted the public to shame each other was quite staggering. Um, going back to David Halpin again, the head of the UK's nudge unit, he also talked about the fact that the British public would do most of the heavy lifting in socially enforcing masks. And this is all part of the behavioural psychology approach to use that kind of herd mentality so that we're really policing each other and making, you know, enforcing the mask wearing. Yeah. And, and the nudge unit was something I wanted to, to ask you about as well, because, you know, I think in the U.S., uh, most people listening to this are probably in the U.S. That's not something that we've been familiar with. I mean, I've read about it, obviously, because of your book and, and other sources. But, uh, you know, can you explain to people what exactly the nudge unit is and, and how they've been operating during the pandemic? Yes, sure. So you will also have nudge in the US. You do. You just don't have something called a nudge unit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you need to find out where your nudges are lodged within government because nudge is really part of how governments do their business now. So the nudge unit is the colloquial term for the behavioral insights team. And that was set up in the UK in, oh, I'm going to get the date right now, I hope, 2011 under the David Cameron um department and originally it was part of strategy and policy um and then it spun out to become its own unit and it was one third owned by the government one third by an organization called nesta and one third by the nudge unit directors so that's lovely set up at taxpayer expense but it's ended up making some of them really quite rich <laughs> and the idea behind um behavioral psychology um and nudge is that it's all about helping us to become better people and um, model citizens without having to resort to new laws. Um, in fact, there's a great quote from Cass Sunstein, who you probably have heard of, as he, he hails from your side of the pond. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me think, I think I've got the quote just here. Yes, so Cass Sunstein is a famous behavioral psychologist, scientist. He's a famous behavioral scientist. And he said, by knowing how people think, we can make it easier for them to choose what is best for them, their families, and society. 
So, isn't it great? There are people who know what's best for you. Now, Cass Sandstein um, was quite close to the Obama administration. I believe he still works for the US government now. So, Behavior, the Behavioural Insights team have exported uh, their company around the world. They have offices around the world, but other other countries too have nudge units embedded in government. And even beyond the nudge unit, there are behavioural scientists in other government departments too. I believe there are 54 in the Treasury in the UK government and also in government agencies, you know, um, such as the UK uh, HSA and also the NHS, um, in the Cabinet Office itself. They're everywhere. Hmm. That's it's very interesting, and it's kind of scary. And that's that's. I also wanted to to get your thoughts on that because uh, you know, do you think that this is something that will the public will be more aware of now? I mean, it, it's obviously been around for ten years or a little more, but uh, you know, d- this, it feels like this was the most concerted effort to to deploy that kind of behavioral psychology to get people to comply with with lockdowns and mandates. So, do you think the population will be more aware of it and more skeptical towards these kinds of, of ideas now, or is it going to be continued and you know accepted going forward? Well, I think it's interesting that um, well, I do, I do think, I like to think, I hope that my book has moved the dial. I mean, it was out early; it was out in May twenty one, and it was really important to me to, I mean, in a way, lay ego aside and get it out early so that it would move the dial because I, I could have turned out a more a more complete and a more perfect book had I waited another year, but I really wanted people to be aware. And they obviously are now. There was a poll that was um, conducted this week in the UK by um, a grassroots organisation called Recovery. And, you know, they used a, a reputable polling company to do this um, with a representative sample of the British public. And they were fi- they were trying to find out what people think of the COVID inquiry terms of reference. So the government is going to hold an inquiry into its handling of the pandemic. But there are quite a few things missing from the terms of reference. You know, most, most famously, people are talking about the fact that children aren't specifically mentioned in the inquiry. I mean, obviously, we have to look at what lockdown and school closures did specifically to children. Now, this poll by Recovery found that 42% of the British public want the inquiry to consider the use of behavioural psychology in influencing public behaviour. And I think that's incredible because before the um, before the pandemic, the issue of nudge rarely, rarely hit the headlines. And although my books had some very favourable um, press and media coverage in certain outlets, it's been completely ignored by others. So it was on the Sunday Times bestseller list for four weeks. It's sold really well. It's had reviews from really respected public figures such as uh, Lord Sumption. A number of times it's been mentioned by the BBC or I've been invited for interview. Zero. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. There's been a real, um, a real attempt to ignore nudge and the fear mongering and the use of behavioural psychology in some areas, but not in others. So the fact that 42% of British people want this specifically to be looked at in the inquiry, I think is incredibly hopeful. It's the best news I've had for ages, Ian. (laughs) However, I don't think the government will want to look at it because I think the enactors of the policy, you know, the plan to deliberately frighten people to make them comply with the lockdown is a really difficult charge to answer. Most people would say that frightening people beyond the scale of a threat is quite egregious. Uh, It's quite sinister, quite insidious. And it's also anti-democratic to subliminally influence people and frighten them into doing what you want them to do. You know, furthermore, they're still nudging all the time. Um, 
you know, depending how much time we've got to spend this interview, but there are other areas where nudge is being applied now to nudge us towards policy goals to soften us up for tough, tough policies. It's incredibly convenient and effective for government rather than passing laws and having all the tricky and convenient debate. Mm -hmm. If you can get people to do what you want without having to force them to do it, it's theoretically it's better for them. And uh, it's kind of it, the implications of that are really, really horrifying when you think about it in detail. Mm. Um, I did want to ask you one one more thing about kind of a data related question. And it was it was mentioned, I believe, in your in your Substack about masks, um, making the comparison between England and Scotland. And, and I've done this mm. uh, recently where, you know, you can post the charts showing that England without mandates is doing better than Scotland with with mass mandates in place. Uh, and you sh you said it was you know essentially the trial and it showed it didn't really matter. So how are people able to kind of continue to get away with ignoring these comparisons? It just it feels inarguable at this point, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, Ian, you'd think so. I wish I had an answer <laughs> for that because literally just today um, there, there were calls for mask mandates to be in introduced because cases are so high in England. And like you, I'm thinking excuse me would you look at scotland they haven't dropped their mask mandates and they've had higher case numbers than england yeah. so although there might be other confounding factors there's no clear argument in favor of masks here it's ridiculous and yeah. you know the number of cases has uh, recently just peaked and it's peaked despite the fact that we haven't reintroduced masks or lockdowns or any other restrictions so that kind of illusion of control that people might have been you know hanging on to before it's got to be dispelled by the fact that a wave has has peaked and is declining all on its own yep yeah it's it seems so obvious but it, it's still so hard to get people to uh to accept that um, because they're such visual reminders. That's the thing, yeah. because it seems to be common sense. It's covering your mouth where you breathe, where you cough. You know, it feels intuitive and it feels like common sense for people. Plus, it's something that they can do. It gives them the illusion of control, which is why they were introduced in the first place. Yeah, but it exactly. is an illusion. It is an illusion, but it's very hard to convince people of that. And ironically, you know, they, they can't use the nudge unit to convince people that it was all an illusion in the first place. <laughs> um, well, absolutely. Now, I, I have had an MP say to me, do you think we need a reverse nudge plan? I said, no, I couldn't possibly uh, agree with that. What we need is honesty from mm -hmm. now and forever not going to happen but the you know the, the problem with using fear is how you reverse from it you do see some signs of reverse nudging now so a little bit of challenging of the data so while a year ago you would not have been able to challenge or drill down on hospitalization data easily not without inside sources which which i had and some journalists at the telegraph had and you were kind of breaking the story that the overall hospitalization figure we had was including people who were admitted to hospital with COVID and had symptoms. It also included people who went to hospital with something entirely different and were tested and found to have COVID. And it also included people who caught COVID in hospital. So it's important to know about all of those subgroups of people. But the reason the number was presented as one big number was for effect. Mm -hmm. Now, what they've done this year is say, ah, but this number includes incidental hospitalization. So you have people who are hospitalized with COVID, 
and from COVID and they're different things. So this is what I'd call a little reverse nudge, a little bit of honesty about the granular detail of the data in order to start dispelling fear. Because you can't go back and say, well, we were exaggerating before. Yeah. Well, do you, and do you think that part of that also was was to show, okay, well, you know, we've had this incredible vaccination rollout, rollout huge amount of uptake. If hospitalization numbers are so high, people are going to start doubting how well these are working and not potentially going to get a booster or, a, you know, they're rolling out fourth shots now or fifth shots down the road. Do you think that, that played a part in that as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because um, I think people oversold what the va- what the vaccines could do and were for at the beginning, um, which I think is very unfortunate. There was never any uh, evidence in the trial data that they would stop death or reduce transmission. Those were hopes. There wasn't evidence. Um, but, you know, indeed, if they have reduced severity of symptoms and reduced hospitalisation, then that has to be shown in the figures otherwise it would look like they hadn't worked so you're right the data has to correspond although there have been enormous amounts of inconsistencies in data at various times yeah uh, looking at the uk's reports uh, on those occasionally it's uh, it's you can see there's a shift when they started putting in a little add-on there saying you know we we've calculated vaccine efficacy ourselves so look at our numbers don't go look at the rates that we've posted down further on those are those can't be interpreted properly but that was very entertaining well, i mean that that is difficult because the UKHSA has published really transparent data about vaccine efficacy and it's quite hard to know what it means because for instance at the moment if you look at the report it would appear that the triple vaccinated are much more likely to be infected with covid than the unvaccinated but this is it depends which population estimate you use because there are different ways of estimating the overall population and so that's what all those disclaimers are about i would have personally no idea which Mm -hmm. population estimate is the right one to use and therefore what it shows about vaccine efficacy yeah it's it is a really hard question uh, to answer i don't think we'll ever get a a perfect answer and it might be totally different between different populations even as well so Mm. um but i wanted to ask you as well uh you know the UK has pretty much dropped almost every restriction and, and it kind of seemed like it happened pretty quickly after going from, you know, mass mandates that are softening up to plan B to almost essentially back to normal, just a matter of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you think that kind of Boris Johnson's political issues that happened around that time frame that kind of came up the party gate, things like that, did that play a part in it? Do you think? Yes. Two things. Party gate was an absolute gift. I mean, nobody, everybody likes fair play, don't they? Nobody likes hypocrisy. So the idea that while people were suffering really, really strict restrictions, which came at enormous personal costs, that number 10 Downing Street was hosting parties was so unpalatable. And that had to hasten the end of the restrictions here, but also Omicron. So although... um, our own public health officials didn't want to concur with the view coming out of South Africa that it was milder and leading to fewer hospitalizations. Um, ultimately, it has proven to be milder. And so I think it's the combined effect of Partygate, massive gift and Omicron. Yeah, well, I guess we have one thing to be grateful for with them being hypocritical about not following <laughs> yeah. their own rules. <laughs> um, so what what's the end game for kind of the opposite side of the coin, which is countries like you know Australia, New Zealand uh, and others, you know, China's in these incredibly strict lockdowns now. And um, they seemingly are OK with having kind of endless pandemic policies. You know, what, what do you think is the end game for those places? 
um, they'll have to reverse out of it because it's not sustainable. Um, the the social, the health, the economic destruction can't be can't be sustained. You can't keep countries locked down. Um, I think you know zero zero that zero COVID is being revealed as the absolute nightmare that it was it was always going to be. Um, it's funny people don't talk about Sweden much anymore, do they? Yeah. Sweden was in the news all the time, all the time when they were branching out on their own and following existing pandemic policy. But look how well it's worked out for Sweden. Yeah, that's again. um, Yeah, I'd say it can't be sustainable because if it is, all that will be, all that will remain is to salt the earth in those countries. Yeah, I was going to say that's exactly, and that, I listened to an interview with one of the Swedish uh, epidemiologists at the time who was saying you can't sustain these policies forever in democracies. You just, you can't do it. Uh, but some, some, there's some places are still trying. Um, y- your latest Substack was about something other than COVID, which I think is is also good to have reminders of there are other issues in the world. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of about how ignoring biology is is impacting the NHS in a real way in, in England. Uh, and it's become a hot topic here in the U.S. as well. With the, we've had this the, the transgender swimmer that has been swimming in these in mm-hmm. uh, female sports competitions. So I wanted to ask what you think about this topic, and you know where does it go from here with these kinds of uh, policies? Mm. Well, it's been quite a hot topic in the U.K. for several years because the Conservative government proposed to reform the Gender Recognition Act, which would mean that somebody would change their gender just on self-identification. They wouldn't need to go before a medical panel or have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. They certainly wouldn't need to embark on any kind of medical treatment. And there have been concerns that that would impact single-sex spaces and single sex rights and the most obvious examples of sports like you're you're just saying with Leah Thomas um also prisons we have had a transgender male sexually assault women in a in a woman's prison here in England um but also you know this this issue with the NHS has just arisen and it's kind of incredible really because the NHS waiting list has gone from 4.24 million at the outset of the pandemic to 6.1 million in January 2022. So the NHS has got some big problems on its hands. And with a hidden backlog, that's going to grow millions more. That's people who avoided elective outpatient admittances or elective procedures. So it was just astonishing to find out recently that thanks to advice from the Society of Radiographers, that some hospital trusts are asking everybody, man or woman, if they could be pregnant before they have uh, cancer treatment or scans that involve radiography. Now, obviously, it's essential to protect unborn babies from radiography. You know, patient safety is paramount, but it's normally quite obvious whether somebody could be pregnant or not based upon their sex. And there will be times when it's not in the case of, say, a pregnant trans man, but these cases are quite rare. And you would think that in those cases, a question might suffice or even referring to the patient notes. But in fact, the NHS doesn't record biological sex anymore. It records gender identity and it could record both, but it's not. It's recording gender identity. So it just seems incredible that where, you know, in the exact place where biological um, facts and data are really important, they're not being recorded. So my article was to draw attention to that. We've got the NHS asking very silly questions of elderly men, whether they're pregnant before they have 
an x-ray. And at the same time, um, you know, journalists are asking politicians here, you know, what's a woman, what's a man, because it's a hot topic, and some of them foundering, unable to answer. So we've got the NHS asking silly questions and politicians completely unable to answer them. Yeah. I mean, do you think that this continues just to get worse as far as these these kinds of obvious things that are, seem very obvious that don't make sense? Is that just going to get worse or is it, do you think that there will be some pushback and get better? Oh, there's lots of pushback. And there has been, there has been here for a while. Um, so I think ultimately uh, truth always wins. Sometimes it just takes time. You know, uh, accommodating people's identity and rights is one thing, but denying biological reality is ultimately going to be futile. And, um, you know, it's a bit like zero COVID. It's not, it's not going to work long term, I don't think. I hope you're right. Uh, and so my last question for you is, is back to COVID because, you know, what else are we going to talk about at the end of the day? Uh, <laughs> so w I just wanted to, to get your idea of the future of pandemic policy in the UK and, you know, specifically with COVID and or if there are future pandemics. So, you know, I mean, do you think masks or vaccine passports that, they, that there's the political capital for them to come back there at some point or are they gone permanently? And then, you know, down the road there's another pandemic or a severe flu or something like that, will lockdowns become kind of a permanent feature now of, of societies? Yeah, I think there's a real danger that some people would exert muscle memory and want to go back into lockdown and also masks. And I just pray that the inquiry will be independent, will be robust and dispel any remaining ideas that they're scientifically proven. Um, I think that the vaccine passport isn't going anywhere it's just quiet at the moment because um sajid javid made a speech um, at a digital transformation summit and he was talking about the nhs app and saying it's been you know it was the most downloaded free iphone app in england and, and that would have been unthinkable just, you know, just a little while ago, a couple of years ago. Now, he said he wants to keep the momentum going. And he would like, by March 2024, for 75% of adults to have the NHS app. So he actually said he wants the app to be for life, not just for COVID. Now, using the app as a way of interacting with the NHS, um, I remain to be convinced whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I haven't looked at that. And it doesn't mean it's the same as vaccine passports being required for entry into civic, social and, and economic life, but it's not actually going away. There's clearly some plan to retain it. So I think that's something to be aware of. Um, there is at the moment a lot of bad press right now about some of the effects of the pandemic. Things which, I mean, honestly, they're, they're kind of enraging. I, I barely have words to express how I feel about what's been done to children. You know, it's coming out increasingly that children have got social development and language issues from having been surrounded by masks in their early years and um, not having had normal social interaction and not going to school. And I, I think there's been an explosion of drugs, bullying and depression among teenagers. You know, I have teenage sons and I've, I've seen this for myself. So there is gonna be more and more coverage I think about the harms of lockdown and I hope that will make people pause for thoughts in the future but what we've seen is a kind of an ideological split in people 
where you know the difference between left and right left and right wing isn't really the main thing anymore it's about authoritarianism and, and liberty and we've seen there are a lot of people who want to lean into that sort of strong arm government into the government making decisions for them and into this authoritarian response and that is still that is still what frightens me it frightens me it frightens me when i wrote the book and and it frightens me now yeah well hopefully uh you know the the inquiry and another kind of pushback will hope get get these policies out of the the public view of as being acceptable you know we got to stop thinking of them as something that could even be tolerated at any point because like you say the harms are tremendous uh laura thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate all of your input and uh everybody you can follow laura on substack laura dots for substack the book is called a state of fear how the uk government weaponized fear during the covid19 pandemic uh you can also follow, follow laura on twitter at uh, at bear reality uh and again thank you so much laura for doing this it was great oh it's an absolute pleasure thanks for having me 